I wonder what picture comes into your mind when you think about the end of the world. Maybe you have this idea of, I don't know, asteroids, fire, destruction, anarchy on the streets, something like you might see in a movie, I guess. But even if I asked you to rein it in a little bit and focus on what you've been taught from the Bible, maybe in the past, what do you think it looks like? What will it look like when the Lord returns on the clouds? Maybe you have this picture of of a rapture when the godly people are all taken away and everybody else is left behind wondering where everyone has gone. Maybe you have some of those pictures from Revelation in your mind, which maybe look a bit more like the movies, to be honest. Fearful creatures, a giant beast, terrifying and glorious throne, elders, creatures in the sky, blazing fire. Well, it's very easy to see, isn't it, why this could become a very difficult question to answer. There are many people out there trying to put all of these pieces together, and some of them are very persuasive. You get these people, and they have what looks like a very kind of complex wiring diagram with a rapture, a seven-year tribulation, a millennium, and a white throne judgment all thrown in. Many of them, usually American, usually on the internet, They'll draw these diagrams and they'll say that Russia is this part and that China is another part, or somebody else will say, well, that's the EU. Trump or Biden is normally the beast at this stage, depending on what side of the political spectrum they're on. And obviously, whatever side they're on, God is on their side. I think, though, maybe if I can rein it in a little bit, there are two very common approaches to the end in the church. Now, this doesn't cover everybody by any means, But some people do this kind of thing. They look into all the figures and all the images and they try to match things up from current events into them. They have to try and decode what the Bible has to say. They like to crunch the numbers, see if they can get the 666 some way or other. And the other group of people in the church run in the opposite direction. Don't want to know, don't think about it. It's all gonna be okay in the end anyway if I trust in Jesus. And it's very understandable why people would do that. It is a very divisive subject. Very intelligent and devout Christians disagree about the details. And there are some things that we just can't know 100%, aren't they? And if we trust Jesus, sure, we have eternal life anyway. So why bother with it? Well, I think we should bother with it because the Bible bothers with it. And in fact, it does quite a lot. So if God has decided to tell us about it in his word, then we should probably listen in the same way that we would listen to what he says about other things. But the important thing, I think, is how we read it. It's easy to get caught up in all of the details, in all of the numbers, and all of the images, and lose sight of the big picture. It's much like what we've been thinking about in the latter chapters of Daniel in the last few weeks. It's important that we don't lose sight of the wood for the trees. So the purpose of tonight isn't to get into all the details and all the numbers and all the images. Sorry if that's disappointing for you. But it's to present, I suppose, in a broad way, the main things. And I hope for that reason, it'll give you a bit more confidence maybe um, to think about this and maybe to talk about it. Because at the end of the day, Christians shouldn't be afraid of the end, should we? We shouldn't be afraid of the end because we should have confidence in looking towards it whatever way we might interpret it. Now, there's a warning here at this point. You might not agree with absolutely everything I say this evening. 
and that's okay. If you believe that one thing will happen at the end when Jesus returns and I say something else, I'll be very happy if I'm proved wrong at the end because I'll just be very happy when Jesus comes back. But I want to present to you tonight what I think, and I don't think it's terribly controversial. So the plan is this. We're going to think firstly about what is the end of the world? What, what is this event that we call the end of the world? Then we're going to ask when is it going to happen? And then we're going to try and look at what it will actually be like, what will happen. And in the midst of that, we'll think about some of these ideas maybe that divide people. We'll look very quickly just at a couple of those at the idea of a, a rapture and also the idea of a millennium, which is found in Revelation chapter 20. It's a thousand years when Christ will reign on the earth, but the way that has been interpreted by lots of different people is quite different. And the point of these is not to look at each thing in detail again, but just to give you an idea so that if people are talking to you about these things, you know what they're talking about, and you'll see how it fits into the bigger picture of how the world ends. So the first question is this, what is the end of the world? And to help us, and we're going to read some verses from Revelation chapter 6. There's going to be lots of short readings tonight rather than one reading at the start and, and then lots of talk about it. And um, so here is Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. I watched as the Lamb opened the sixth seal. Now, the Lamb has already opened five seals. These are things that have happened on heaven, which happened before the end of the world. So we've got to the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The world's not going to end like what we see in Hollywood blockbusters with asteroids or aliens or nuclear disaster. What is the end of the world? Well, the end of the world is judgment. It's judgment. Our holy God is coming to judge this sinful world. Now, if you've been in church any length of time, it won't surprise you to hear that God's going to judge the world at the end. But it's important to remember this because very often when we think about the end, we only think of heaven. We only think of where we go next. But that's the start of the next world, not the end of this one. And that's what we're thinking about tonight. We have to go through the end of this one first. So there's going to be a judgment now, Revelation 6 doesn't actually use the word judgment, but there are a number of clues for us that this is a judgment. The language really mirrors what we find in Isaiah 34 about the moon being red, the stars falling, the sky rolling up. Here are some words from the Old Testament. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. And if you take time, if you go away tonight and want to read Isaiah 34, you'll see certain words appearing again and again. Judgment is one of them. Vengeance, retribution. Now, whether the moon turning to blood and stars falling is a literal thing or whether it's a sort of metaphor for judgment, that's to be decided. But the important thing for now 
is to see that Revelation 6 is speaking of judgment. Another clue that this is a judgment is because God is described as being on the throne. In modern English, we might say that he's on the bench in the courtroom. That's what the idea of a throne would have meant to the original readers of Revelation. Kings sit on thrones, kings make laws, they issue verdicts, and they hand out the consequences. And the final reason we know this is a judgment is because the event is called the great day of their wrath. Now, our idea of wrath is probably someone who's uncontrollably angry. Maybe you've incurred the wrath of another angry driver on the road or something like that. But God's wrath isn't like that. He's not out of control or out of his mind with fury. God is love. But because he is so loving, he hates all sin. All things that hurt and damage the people and the world that he loves so much. It's maybe hard for us at times to see how serious that sin is, but God sees it. He sees the sin and he sees its consequences. He sees all the lies and gossip, abuse, greed, theft, pride, lust, adultery, exploitation, I could go on, cheating, idolatry, addiction. He sees it all. And so God responds with perfect, balanced, just wrath against sin. The judgment is fitting. In fact, it would be unloving of God not to address sin in this way. What sort of good God wouldn't deal with sin? It would be like a parent never disciplining a child, letting them go down all the wrong paths and doing nothing about it. So the world will end in judgment. And before we move on to think about when that's coming, I'll just say a few more things about the judgment. This judgment is inescapable. It's for everyone. We read a few moments ago, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, so it's for everyone, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. This is something that is for everyone. And the other thing is that this judgment is carried out by the lamb. The lamb is Jesus, the one who died, who was sacrificed for us. And if, if you were hearing this for the first time, that might surprise you. Maybe you think of Jesus as somebody who, who is simply kind, who would never condemn anyone. Lambs certainly aren't very threatening animals, but it's clear. John says that the lamb will do the judging. John and Peter in the New Testament say the same thing. Paul says it. But Jesus said it himself, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So Jesus is the judge, but this is actually good news. That's where the good news comes in, because it gives us hope. In Revelation 5, verse 9, when it's talking about the Lamb, it says, For you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the end of the world is a terrible, terrible judgment. It's dreadful, but there is hope because the person judging is the very person who loves us, who laid down his life for us to save us if we will trust in him. But let's be clear, if you're here tonight and you don't trust him, well, he is your only hope. He will judge all the living and the dead. Our only hope is him. What about timing then? When is the world going to end? I don't want to spend a long time on this, but it's worth mentioning because some people really do obsess over this. 
And the Bible says that it's going to happen soon. Jesus said that the present generation wouldn't pass away before he returns. Paul doesn't say too much about it, but Peter and John both clearly say that the end will be soon. I have the Peter example up on the screen. The end of all things is near. So why hasn't it happened yet, if this is the case? Well, Peter anticipates this question. In his next letter, he writes, above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. People will say that there's no point to this world, there's no rhyme, no reason. Our ancestors lived and died, we're going to live and die. Everything just keeps going on. What about this second coming you're talking about? I don't see it. But here's how Peter goes on to explain this. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Simply put, God's timing is very different to ours. I think the thousand years and a day thing there is a metaphor. I, I don't think we're meant to take it literally. But if we did take it literally that a thousand years are like a day, then we're only just about to enter the third day after Christ ascended into heaven. We've just nearly had 2,000 years since Christ descended into heaven. So God's thinking is not constrained by time in the way that ours is. It might seem slow to us because he is patient, wanting to give people the opportunity to repent. So when's it going to happen? Well, the simple answer is we don't know. Although the Bible says soon, it's all in God's timing. But the other thing to say about timing is this. It's very foolish to try and predict the time of the end. Jesus himself said, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, that's a complicated verse because how could the Father know and the Son not know if we believe in one God? Well, I think Jesus is drawing on imagery out of Jewish culture of a Jewish wedding because the father of the bride was the one who controlled the date of the wedding. Sometimes the bridegroom and the bride didn't actually know. Now, often they did for practical reasons, but it was, it was the tradition that he was the one who decided. So Jesus is saying that he's submitting to the father's authority he may well actually know the date. I'm, I'm not sure, but the important thing for tonight is this. We do not know the date. It's silly to try and guess, to trace earthquakes and wars and political movements and decisions or whatever else, and to try and pinpoint a time. No one in history who has ever claimed to know the date has ended up looking like anything else than a complete idiot. It's never happened when anybody has predicted that it's going to happen. Do not follow anyone who says they know when the world's going to end because they don't. So the end of the world is judgment. Okay, we've got that. It's terrible judgment, though we have hope through our judge, Jesus Christ. We don't know when it's going to happen, but what do we know about what it will look like when the world ends? In the lead up to it, we're told there will be prophets and false messiahs and wars and earthquakes and persecution, but I don't want to focus on those tonight. Instead, I want to focus on, on the judgment itself. What will that be like? It's probably just too difficult to imagine, but here's how Jesus describes it. 
in Matthew 24. Immediately after the distress of those days, that's all the false prophets and messiahs and wars and earthquakes and so on, immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to another. The very first thing about this return of Jesus for judgment is that it's going to be a public event. Everybody's going to notice. Jesus says that everyone will see him coming on the clouds of heaven, that will hear the loud trumpet call the moon being darkened, or sorry, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, and stars falling. There's a loud trumpet call that everyone will hear, and God's people will be gathered. It's going to be nothing like the first time Jesus came quietly in a manger. Only his family and a few shepherds and the wise men later knew about it. But not so here. It's the opposite. Everybody's going to see it, And here's some more verses that that show us that it's going to be public. This is Jesus speaking. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We're going to see it. If somebody says, oh, he's out there in the desert, or oh, he's in this wee room in this house, don't believe it. Because when he comes, you're going to know about it. You won't miss it if you're flicking through stuff on your phone. You're not going to miss it at all. And I think it's important to say too that when Jesus talks about his people being gathered from all over the earth, this involves resurrection too. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So that we will be changed is the being judged not guilty bit, the bit about going into glory when our bodies are glorified, we will be changed. But before that, the dead will be raised imperishable. So that's the order. Jesus comes, the dead are raised, and then the judgment. There are a few things, though, that I haven't mentioned and Well, I mentioned them in my introduction. You might hear people talk about them. Um, And these are, in fact, things that people sometimes do fall out over. The first is this idea of a rapture. A rapture. You've maybe heard that word. I suspect you have. It's the idea that Jesus will return secretly, that the world won't see the event. Christians will be caught up to be with Jesus, while those who are left behind are left to face the events of the book of Revelation which are known as the tribulation. Then Jesus will return in a public way in the way that we just read in Matthew 24 with trumpets and all the rest of it. You might have heard this idea and it still has a lot of popularity. But this idea basically didn't exist for 1800 years after Jesus lived and died. So that's probably the first alarm bell. The church hasn't believed this for very long. But in the late 19th century, a man called John Darby made the idea very popular. And the idea was spread through a copy of the Bible, which is called the Schofield Reference Bible. Some of you might be familiar with that. Maybe even some of you have it. But let's look at the idea biblically. 
Let's be clear, the Bible does teach something of a rapture. That the idea of rapture is just the idea of being caught up into the clouds with the Lord. And it teaches that in 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Now, I'm sure you can see that it's the only place in the Bible where this idea is mentioned, where rapture is mentioned, believers being caught up in the air with the Lord. But it says it in the context of a loud command, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. So, a secret rapture? I don't think so. People who believe in, a, in this secret rapture would um, say that this event is different to the one in Matthew 24, that it'll be a silent rapture first, and then the tribulation, and then Matthew 24. But I don't see it. The trumpet call, the rising from the dead, the Lord's return. I think Paul and Matthew are talking about the same event, and it's a public event, not a private or a secret one. Now, those who believe in the secret rapture point to a few other places. In 1 Thessalonians 5, just a few verses after the ones we read, and also in Matthew 24, both Paul and Jesus both speak of his return as coming like a thief coming in the night. And they also point to these verses in Matthew 24. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken and the other left. So what about these? How do we deal with these? Well, again, both of these sets of verses come in a context. First Thessalonians and Matthew, there's a teaching about a public return. The idea of a thief coming in the night doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be quiet or secret. A thief isn't necessarily quiet, but they do normally come unannounced. The idea of the Lord coming like a thief in the night is simply the idea that we don't know when he's coming, but it doesn't mean that it'll be quiet. Eugene Peterson, in his um, paraphrase of the Bible, the message, puts it like this from 1 Thessalonians 5. You know as well as I that the day of the master's coming can't be posted on our calendars. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. I like the way he's put that. He won't call ahead and make an appointment any more than a burglar would. The idea of coming like a thief in the night simply means that we don't know when it's going to be. It'll be sudden. And the same with those verses in Matthew about two working together and, and one being taken away and the other left. There's nothing in those verses to suggest that that's going to be silent or quiet or secret or that it's, it's separate from the Lord coming with the trumpet. One will be taken and the other will be left, but that is in the context of the Lord coming publicly at the trumpet sound. Now, this is one of those things. If I'm wrong about it, I will quite happily be raptured silently at the end when he comes, but I don't think the Bible teaches that. One of the other controversial issues then um, I want to look at is the idea of the millennium. So in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 4, it says this, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, and I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ 
for a thousand years. So where does this thousand years, this millennium fit in? Because if you read what Jesus says about the end of the world, or even what Paul says about the end of the world, there's no millennium. But John talks about this, so where do we fit it in? Well, there are three main views on this. It sounds complicated. Believe me, it's not that complicated. They have big, long names, but they're not complicated. There's premillennial, postmillennial, and amillennial. Okay, but they are what they sound like. Um, and I just very quickly want to run you through each one, just so that you kind of get an idea of what they roughly say. Um, I don't know how many times this week in commentaries I've read the same joke. Most Christians are pan-millennial. They believe it'll pan out okay in the end. Um, uh, yeah, that's a good joke, isn't it? Um, so if you don't follow what I'm saying, you can just say you're a pan-millennial and it'll all pan out okay in the end. But the basic idea is this. Pre-millennials believe that Christ will return pre, before the millennium, and then that he will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Um, so pre-millennial, he, he comes, and then there's the millennium. Now, there are some Christians who believe this. It's fairly uncontroversial. And the main advantage of this view is that it seems to follow the order in Revelation, because Jesus returns in Revelation 19, and then the millennium happens in chapter 20. Some other groups, like Jehovah's Witnesses, hold to this view of the millennium. So if one calls at your door and starts talking about the millennium, you'll know what they're talking about. They believe that Jesus really is about to return, and he's about to usher in the millennium. That, that, that's what they will give to you. Now, that's problematic for us because we know that it's not possible to know when the Lord's going to return. Um, it's not the only problematic thing about Jehovah's Witnesses, but we'll not go down that road tonight. Some people who hold to this view that Jesus is going to come and then there's going to be the millennium add in the rapture and tribulation into the mix as well, and it all gets a bit complicated. Now, I don't hold this view myself, but I think it's a, it's a reasonable way to read Revelation that Christ will return and then there's a millennium when he reads on the earth, at least without the rapture bit as far as I'm concerned. Postmillennials, unsurprisingly, are the opposite. They believe that Jesus will return after the millennium. Now, how do they get away with that if it says in Revelation 19 that Jesus is going to come back and in 20 that there will be the millennium? Well, it's quite simple, really. In Revelation 20, it talks about the final defeat of Satan, and that seems really rather similar to what it says at the end of Revelation 19 about the downfall of Satan. So post-millennials believe that Revelation 19 and 20 are just describing the same event from different points of view. It's not that one happens after the other, they're actually the same event, just from different perspectives. So that's how they get around that. But the big advantage of being post-millennial is that it fits much better with what Jesus and Paul say, because they don't mention the millennium. So it would make sense for the millennium to happen first, and then what Jesus says, he returns and there's judgment just fits into that very nicely, it makes more sense. If the millennium happens first, it paves the way just for Jesus to return and judge, and that's it. So it fits quite well with the New Testament. Now, historically, this has led to all sorts of strange things. People like William Wilberforce and other Christians who were abolishing slavery, they believed that they were ushering in the millennium. If, if we can create a better world, then we'll start the millennium, and Christ will return. Now, again, that's a problem because we can't know the dates and the times. The Bible teaches that we can't. Now, you won't hear of many Christians today saying we're trying to usher in the millennium, but you will see remnants of this in the church. 
It's why, for example, you'll see some people, some not all, but some people supporting Israel politically as some sort of you know, movement towards the end times. Now, I don't want to talk about that tonight. And let me just say categorically, yes, the Lord has a heart for the people of Israel and wishes that they, along with many others, would turn to him. I'm not saying that we shouldn't support Israel politically. I'm not taking sides on that one at all tonight. But I just think that the political stuff that comes out of Revelation 20 isn't really appropriate. That's all I'm saying. You might want to chasten me for that afterwards, but there you go. That's what I think. Now, the third way of reading Revelation 20 is amillennialism. That's a word and a half. In theory, it's a type of, of post-millennialism. It, it, it understands that Jesus will come back after the millennium, okay? So it's another one of those. And that's good, as I say, because it fits with Matthew and Thessalonians. But it's different in that it doesn't see the millennium as a literal event. If you think about it in all this COVID stuff that's going on at the minute, somebody who's asymptomatic is somebody who has it but doesn't show any symptoms. So amillennial is somebody who believes in the millennium but not a literal one. Now, how do we get away with that? Well, think about it. Most of the numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic. John says that there are going to be 144,000 people saved at the end, but he also says elsewhere that it's a great multitude that nobody could number. So the number 144,000 is clearly symbolic. 12 is a special biblical number. 12 squared is 144. Add thousands, it's a symbolic number. There are other symbolic numbers in Revelation 2. Seven comes up a lot. 666 on the beast. They all symbolize something. So it would seem logical then to see this thousand years in the same way as representative of something else. It is a symbol of a long period of time. And specifically, I think it represents the time between Christ ascending into heaven and then him returning again. He reigns on the earth in this time because he has defeated the worst enemies of this earth, sin and death, and we share with him in that spiritual victory. And so I think Revelation 20 lifts the curtain on this reality from a heavenly perspective. Satan has already been defeated. The gospel is going forth into the nations. Christ reigns on the earth. So that's what I think. I, I'm an amillennial. But hopefully that just gives you a bit of a parameter of, of what the millennium is. So the end of the world is judgment. We don't know when it's coming, but we have an idea of the events that there'll be a public spectacle. Believers will be caught up with the Lord in the air. I don't think there's a secret rapture, but I also believe that we are currently living in that millennium and we have been since Christ rose into heaven and will be until his return. But what will it actually look like? Well, I can't draw you a picture. I can't say for sure. But just as I finish off, I want to say a few things about it. The first thing is that everyone will be there. Now, we've already seen that in Revelation, that everybody on the earth was kind of hiding in the mountains and the caves. But everyone will be there. Everybody who has ever lived will be there. We believe in a general resurrection. Sometimes people confuse the resurrection for eternal life. It's something that people think that only Christians will do. But the Bible teaches that everyone will rise. Those spirits who've gone to heaven to be with Christ, as we looked at last week, they'll come back with him to be reunited with their bodies to face judgment. Unsaved spirits will also return and be reunited with their bodies to face judgment. We read in Daniel 12 and verse 2, and we'll read these verses next Sunday morning. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, 
some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. 1 Corinthians 15 teaches the same. There's a general resurrection everyone will raise. Now, I can't go into that everlasting life and everlasting contempt. That's for Marty to pick up next week. But how will the judge, the lamb, Jesus, how will he decide who goes where? Well, Revelation describes it in terms of books and the book. It's quite snappy. It's an easy way to remember it. Books and the book. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. Those books, they seem to be records of everything that you and I have done. And if that was all we had, we would be hopelessly lost. But there is hope. There is another book, the book of life. It's a list of those who the Lamb died to save. And all those people in that book, they go to glory. And this judgment really is the best news. We get to go then to the new heavens and the new earth. Whatever picture we want to use that Jesus gave us, separating the sheep and the goats or the wheat and the weeds, Jesus assures us that his people will be saved. And everything evil, death, Hades, Satan himself, all that is wrong with this world gets thrown into the fire. So to summarize then, the end of this world is a judgment. There will be some signs and pointers to it happening, but ultimately we, we can't put the date in our calendars. It will come suddenly, unannounced, like a thief in the night, but we will know about it. It will be loud. All of those things with the sun, moon, and stars, and the trumpet, however we read those, they certainly mean this. We won't miss it. We will see it and hear it when our Lord returns. Believers on earth will be brought from all over the earth by angels and will be taken up into the air to meet him. This will leave others behind, but it will be no secret or silent rapture. The spirits of believers who've died will return from heaven to be reunited with their bodies. The spirits of unsaved people will return from Hades, that place that First Peter calls the prison, to be reunited with their bodies. And at the judgment they will be condemned. But for those whose name is in the book of life, their bodies will be changed and they will enter into glory, God's new creation. All right, do we have any questions immediately? I think there's something scarier about it, even from my point of view when I'm up here. I feel like I'm closer to you down there. Any? Nobody has sent me anything, so this could be a quick Q&A. Okay, well, while, while you're thinking and maybe typing, um, there are a few things that, that I didn't say, which I shall perhaps um, say to give you time to do that. Um, something I didn't really go into tonight is, is how we read the Bible around all of this, um, particularly how we read the book of Revelation. I, I mentioned some people, some crazy, some not so crazy, who, who like to try and pin events into Revelation. You know, an obvious example is the beast. Who is the beast? Um, and people will try and say, well, Hitler is the beast or you know, some sort of political movement is the beast or, or whatever um, it happens to be. And it has to be said that this is really difficult because um, it, I'm still running with the idea of a beast. Um, we read in Daniel last week that beasts were kingdoms. They were representative um, of kingdoms. So 
The first people reading this or hearing this would have thought, Rome, this has to be the Roman Empire. This must be, this is the worst, most horrible thing on the earth that is oppressing us. It must be Rome. But the world didn't end after the fall of Rome. The world didn't end after Adolf Hitler fell. So, so how do we read that? Well, it, it's much like what we've been saying on the Sunday mornings that many of these things are very symbolic. But I think actually what Revelation gives us is a pattern. It gives us a pattern that repeats over and over and over again until the Lord returns. It might have been quite appropriate for those first readers to say, oh yes, that was Rome. It might have been appropriate for somebody else to say it was Nazism. It might have been appropriate for somebody else to say it was something else. That's fine. I don't think we always have to pin it down into one thing. But Revelation gives us a pattern um, of what is, going to, what is going to happen as we run to the end. I have a question. Um, it mentions the Antichrist standing in God's temple. Is that a physical event or symbolic? Um, <laughs> You know, as I say, Revelation is so highly um, symbolic. Um, even if it is symbolic, it must represent something that is actually going to happen. So that that is difficult. But I would probably say that that is symbolic. Um, I'd probably say that um, you know p people are going to be led astray in these last days. That the Bible tells us that over and over again. And, and many of these things are going to stand in God's place. Um, if you read what John has to say about the Antichrist in his letters, he doesn't actually pin down one Antichrist. He says that people um, who claim to have the Spirit of God but who are false teachers, they are Antichrists. So Antichrists are, are a, gr a group of people, not just one specific person, and they're people who kind of stand in the place of God and lead people astray. So I think it's probably symbolic in that sense. Um, okay, so when the dead are risen, will we be reunited with our loved ones before the judgment? This, this, to be honest, is really tricky because the Bible doesn't give us particularly um, a, a very clear answer. But I think one of the things that I can say is that when we were looking um, last week um, at Luke chapter 16, when um, Abraham was there and Lazarus and, and the rich man were there, they were in Hades together, their spirits were there, but they could clearly see one another and they could talk to one another and they could recognize to one another. So we don't believe in soul sleep, where, um, which is what some people teach, which is that we would go to sleep when we die. Um, and then we only wake up at the resurrection. But actually, in that intermediate time, um, we are conscious and we can see and we can uh, recognize one another. So I'm going to say up front, I don't know. Um, but if, I was, if you were pushing me for an answer, if you were twisting my arm, I'd say, no, even after we die, we, we will be able to recognize one another. Um, I, I know that maybe doesn't answer the question um, really directly. Um, but I suppose I couldn't see why we wouldn't see or know one another. But at the same time, there's gonna be a, a much greater event taking place, that judgment people were hiding in the caves and the mountains calling for the caves and the mountains to fall on them and um, to avoid the judgment. Um, so I'd say we might be preoccupied with other things, um, but I, I am very open to the idea um, that after we die, we will see and recognize, um, <laughs> recognize loved ones. Um, what do you take the mark um, of the beast to mean is the next question. Gosh, there, there is a big question. Um, again, I, I, I have to say, I think we don't know. Um, 
And many people, I, th I think this is one of the areas, and, and the person who texted this in has alluded to this in their next message. Some people um, try to, to, to put things in, in here. So, um, you know, uh, really crazy people um, will say things like, oh, you know, the vaccines are the mark of the Antichrist, or, um, you know, microchipping one another, having chips under your skin is the mark of the... I don't, I don't believe that for, for a moment, and I suspect this person doesn't either. Um, I, I, don't really, I don't really know. I just, I suppose I take it again to be um, that mark of non-authenticity. Um, same as I take with, with the Antichrist and so on. Um, the beast is one who will lead people astray, who will kind of stand in the place of God in that sense, um, appear to be God to people. Um, and, and I think those who are fooled by the, by the beast um, symbolically have the mark of the Antichrist. That's, that's how I take it. But somebody who knows much more about Revelation may want to may come back to me on that. Um, you wouldn't know that I had sat a module on Revelation um, about a year and a half ago. <laughs> it's, it's so, so difficult. Um, revelation, but um, I, I would tend to see that as something that is symbolic because I think if it was something that was physical and was real, it would just be you know so obvious and nobody would ever be fooled by it. So I think it, it, it must be something um, symbolic. I mentioned symbolic numbers. I'll throw this in one in for nothing. Um, a lot of people sometimes ask, you know, what what is six six six? What is the number of the beast? Um, I, I take it as um, the number seven in Revelation um, represents perfection. So, for example, the seven spirits of God, you know, therefore God's spirit is perfect. So I take six as being the number that's nearly seven, but not quite. So that the beast is one who kind of appears to some as, as a God-type figure, but he, he never has that. He, ne he never makes the mark, if you will. Um, his number is six and not seven. Are there any questions from the floor I should have said before I went off waffling? It's fine if there aren't. We've had some good questions. I feel like I'm at a wedding when they say, speak now forever, hold your peace. Um, but it's not like that. As you know, um, you have my number on screen. Some of you just have my number. It's on the church website, um, ravenhillchurch.org. Um, if you're not brave enough to shout out a question, um, please do. Um, don't be afraid to, to be in touch with me um, after this service. The final thing I'll say again before we sing um, is just to recommend a book to you. I'm sorry I don't have a physical copy of it to hold up because uh, my copy of it is electronic, but it's a book called, funnily enough, How Will the World End? Um, it's published by the Good Book Company. It's written by a man called Jeremy Rin. It's only between 70 and 80 pages long. Um, I skimmed through it um, in little over than an hour. Um, I think I bought it for three pounds something as an e-book. So it's not expensive, it's not very long, it's not a difficult read. Um, but, and you'll see that I have, um, and I want to acknowledge this, that I have um, taken some material from that in what I have presented to you um, tonight. But it's a really simple uh, little book. If, if you're interested in this, if you want to know a bit more, um, it would be probably the place that I would recommend um, that you go to. Uh, just before we, we close in song then, let's pray. Our Father, we again praise you for the gift of Jesus, your Son, the one you gave so freely to us so that we would not need to fear the end, that we would not need to fear the judgment, but that we could look towards it with anticipation as that great day when, when all will be put right, when all that is wrong with this world will be thrown into the fire. 
and that we can look forward at that time to having uh, life with you forever. Lord, we acknowledge that we can't see it all. We can't picture it all in our minds. We can't know it all. But thank you that we can trust you with it. Thank you that you reign and you rule, that Christ has defeated the powers of sin and death and hell even now, and that he will rule and reign forever. So Lord, as we look to that day, Lord, would you help us to live for you? Lord, would you help us um, to live lives that are worthy of you? Would you help us to be ready for that day? Would you help us to pray as you would want us to pray? Would you help us to spread the good news to others so that they too could look forward to that day? In Jesus' name, amen.